Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation full of odds and ends that I'm tempted to just call third person. It's been a while since I've recorded, longer than I intended, as a matter of fact. But things have been going on in my world, and it's been a bit of a challenge. Uh, I've said, even as far back as the first year of this show, that I've got this theory that most people can divide their lives into three areas. For uh, the majority of us, that's a a work-life balance, where there's a work piece and a home piece. And then whatever that other thing is. So for me, that has historically divided up into work and home and church. You could choose to divide it up with the hobby instead to say, well, maybe there's a work piece, a home piece, and then this hobby of podcasting, which is sort of how I, I'm treating it. But I choose instead to, to keep that division as work, home, and church because that uh, trio is the thing that I have to interact with in order to make time to do podcasting at all. And... What I've said, my general theory is that you can get along okay if, uh, any, if, if even if two of those three things are going badly, you can get along okay. If all three of those things have serious challenges or if you're struggling in those areas, then you're really going to have a tough time thriving or even getting by. And right now, I can make an argument that I'm having, you know, some real, facing real challenges in all three of those areas. I will leave work out of the podcast as I always have. But it's been a challenging time there. Uh, the church that I attend, uh, the church I talk about more often than not in the Walk the Earth podcast is either the church we left or the church I'm attending now. Well, the church I'm attending now is right at that moment of building a building. I've gone from joining a church that had no building to a church that's about to build one. And that is uh, you know, a, always a struggle, always a kind of a frustrating process, this notion of uh, negotiating costs and fees and times and schedules and project management issues and just building a building. So there's trouble there on that front as well. And at home, we're dealing with the death in the family. I've recently lost my father-in-law. Uh, in a post that I put up a couple of years ago, an articles, uh, which you can find at inappropriateconversations.org, the right navigation bar has a category index, and one of those categories is articles. I posted one called Nobody's Child, and at the time it was true about me that my side of the family had no living uh, patriarch or matriarch, that my mother and father were both dead, my grandparents were dead, my aunts and uncles were all dead. It, it was the end of an era. The one holdout, if you look at my wife and I as a collective, was her father. And now, as of the last week, that's, well, he's gone too. So, in the midst of trying to figure out how to how to manage funeral arrangements, and how to deal with all the sort of the stress that comes with that. Uh, finding time to record has been more challenging than I thought it would have been. And, uh, of course, this throws a wrench into everything. This show was always intended to be a bit of a hodgepodge, though. I, I've had this on the list to do for quite some time. I bumped it out of the way to put some other topics ahead of it a couple of times, which is why it's so late in the year. But I wanted to do something prior to the Pride 48 June live streaming event. 
at the time you're hearing this podcast, it is this next very weekend. It is Friday night coming up. At 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time Friday, either at pride48.com or using the TuneIn app or some other uh, means, you can catch the June streaming event that runs from Friday evening, June 21st, all the way through Sunday evening, June 23rd. This is an annual event that I've put my ears on for quite some time now, and in and around travel schedules, because obviously travel has become a piece of how I'm dealing with uh, recent family events, I'll be tuning in as well. So I wanted to make sure that I took time in this particular show to shout out to that, to do a to do a podcast before that event actually starts so that I can play the promo at least one more time. So part of this is making sure that I'm talking about the June Pride 48 event before it happens. And to once again kind of put a reminder out there that for the last couple of years, uh, last couple of events rather, I participated in the Pride 48 Live Expo and I intend to be in attendance this August as well in New Orleans. We'll get to that more in just a minute because it's taken me so long to get around to the rest of the story from last um, New Orleans event that we're almost to the point of lapping it. There's, It's been 10 months since I've kind of made a mental note that I might need to tell the rest of the story in a podcast from Inappropriate Conversations number 212. So when I mean when I say odds and ends, I kind of mean it. I want to start with a couple political topics, maybe hit the different drummer right in the middle here a little bit early, and then deal with the personal stuff on the other side and find some points along the way to discuss and promote the upcoming events this summer at Pride48.com. Quickly, though, how you can interact with uh, me at Inappropriate Conversations, I'll keep this as a short bullet point kind of list. Twitter, I'm IC underscore Greg. Uh, SoundCloud, also, IC underscore Greg. For the uh, website itself, inappropriateconversations.org, has a complete list of every podcast I've ever recorded, both Inappropriate Conversations and Walk the Earth, blog posts as well. Everything's ever posted is still available there. I can be reached via email at IC underscore Greg at hotmail.com. Same website I've always had from the very beginning. And via Facebook, there's a Facebook page for Inappropriate Conversations listed as a cause, how you'll find it, and Walk the Earth has a Facebook page as well. I mentioned I wanted to start with some political topics. I may actually end with a short story. I said that if I didn't call this like an odds and ends show, it's certainly not a points and questions show. I don't have feedback that I want to cover in this episode, but it's more of an odds and ends show. But rather than call it that... I may finish this episode off with a, with another short story that I've referred to in the past from the Manifestos of Neo-Surrealism. I think the last time I did this was a couple of Easter's ago, and I kind of thought it might be the last time I dipped into this anthology. I'm not 100% sure. I haven't shared the story I want to share today again. But as I get to the introduction for that at the end of the episode, I think it'll be pretty clear as to why and what I was thinking. Early on in this calendar year, I mentioned that it was hard to imagine inappropriate conversations not hitting political topics before we got to the end of the year. And I'm not going to spend a ton of the time in this episode on political topics, but it seemed like we're at the halfway point. And if I'd been recording on a more regular basis, I probably would have gotten to some of these topics before now. So rather than waiting and devoting an episode to it and perhaps you know, missing the window, which is very possible due to the, to, to the delays I've been dealing with, then I'll just kind of cover them in short form. I want to deal a little bit with some things that are happening in the state of Missouri and what might be done about it as a sort of a 
kind of a hypothetical suggestion on how to deal with what I think is, frankly, criminal behavior from the government in the state of Missouri. But first, it seems like it's you know past time for me, anyway, to talk about the Mueller report. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, I'm still working my way through that. I've decided to consume the Mueller report in podcast form. I have found a podcast that functions a bit like an audiobook and seems to be doing a pretty good job handling some of the weirdness of a report where there might be issues like redactions and even footnotes to deal with. So that's kind of on my mind. But one of the biggest things I think that I struggle with on this is how many people seem to have a fundamental misunderstanding of the United States Constitution, of what the special prosecutor was charged with doing, how the current attorney general has you know, forced the uh, special prosecutor's office to react, and what those reactions mean. In other words, the one thing that is positively and absolutely false here is that the Mueller report in any way exonerated Donald Trump. If anything, the exact opposite has occurred. Think about it from the special prosecutor's perspective. You are directly answerable in a chain of command to the attorney general, uh, or maybe somewhat indirectly, maybe there's a layer in between you, and the new attorney general, but you are nevertheless in that chain, and your your authority stops well before you get to the attorney general's office. So if the person sitting in that chair right now has written an opinion that says that the president of the United States absolutely cannot be indicted under any circumstances, and you've found clear evidence that the president of the United States has committed crimes, or at least the kind of things that a good district attorney would consider, and that if a DA was handed information that should be considered to be potentially criminal, what would you do if you could not actually press charges against somebody? Because the person in charge, in this case, the Attorney General of the United States, has decided that there's no way that pressing criminal charges will be permitted under any circumstances whatsoever. What exactly do you do then? And what Robert Mueller appears to be saying pretty clearly is, that he wasn't going to make direct accusations of criminal charges that ought to be filed if the person would never get their day in court because the attorney general would simply quash that piece of information, would would say, hey, thanks for your opinion, special prosecutor's office, but I've got this other opinion that says we're never going to act on it. Now, I've got a theory that the original notion, the original letter within the Department of Justice that suggested that a sitting president could not be charged with crimes was on its face fairly self-serving and two-dimensional. In other words, it doesn't raise to the level of law. It certainly doesn't raise to the level of being constitutional. It was an opinion. It was a point of view. And the reason I call it self-serving is that that notion came about during a time when both the President of the United States and the Vice President of the United States were under investigation for fairly serious crimes, conspiracies, graft, corruption, those types of things. And if the last thing you wanted was for the sitting Vice President to become President, because his uh, criminal investigation and the case against him was much further along and, and frankly, uh, very full of black-letter bribery kind of charges then you might want to put an opinion out there that provides some sort of you know, fig leaf of cover for the President of the United States to say, well, hey, the President can't be charged with a crime. By the way, the Vice President can. It ramps up the pressure on a man like Spiro Agnew to resign his position, which then protects the country from getting rid of one criminal President only to have another 
perhaps even more criminal president, take his place. Meaning that an internal memo, a document within the Justice Department that came from that pretext, is obviously uh, self-serving, short-sighted, with a limited shelf life. And the fact that it's being treated right now by some people in Washington, D.C. as if it's black-letter law or full-on constitutional is strange and disturbing, to say the least. But if you told Mueller in his office that pressing criminal charges against the sitting president was out of the question, that does leave the only constitutional remedy as the impeachment process. So when people who speak for the president of the United States, or perhaps even on social media, the president himself, talk about relitigating the Mueller report or the Russian investigation, or we've got the report, therefore it's all done, and the report said its thing and it's over with, Frankly, every single person who says that who is a lawyer should be disbarred and should be disbarred fairly quickly. Because to misunderstand how the criminal justice system works and how that might apply in an analogy to the U.S. Congress and its role in you know, checking presidential power, including the impeachment process. Well, if you don't understand that, then you ought not be an attorney. And if you somehow are an attorney and are lying about it to try to influence public opinion in an untoward way you ought to be disbarred. Or if you could pass a lie detector test that you really don't understand things like arraignment and preliminary hearings, well then, guess what? You ought to be disbarred. What Mueller has produced is an arraignment document that could be used by the House of Representatives to call for preliminary hearings. Those preliminary hearings could lead to impeachment of the president, which would be, in effect, advancing a charge made in an arraignment to a judgment in a preliminary hearing that this person should stand trial. And then the process would leave the House of Representatives and go to the United States Senate where there would be a trial. And at the end of the day, even if that trial turns out to be something of a kangaroo court because of how, well, is it corrupt or is it just corrupt by politics our current U.S. Senate is, well, then, at the very least, you've forced a vote. You've forced that corruption out into the public. And that's the process. Meaning, what Mueller has done is produced a document that should be viewed as an arraignment. The House of Representatives should do their job, despite the histrionics of the White House, and hold hearings as quickly as possible on that arraignment to determine if this document produced by Mueller and his office does have sufficient merit to put somebody on trial for impeachment. That's the House's job. And it's a job currently, they're not getting done very effectively. They should double down, triple down if need be, and get these hearings going. And anyone that they call to testify before the committees do not come. Well, then those folks should be held in contempt, and the judgments against them should be, well, obviously left up to the courts. But I would want the courts to definitely include imprisonment. And imprisonment until such time as someone who has been called by subpoena to testify shows up to do exactly that. Because we wouldn't tolerate this in a criminal case. If somebody had been charged with a crime like embezzlement, say, and a uh, preliminary hearing was scheduled to determine if the charges were sufficient to merit a jury trial, and key witnesses who were called to testify before that preliminary hearing just decided they didn't really care what that judge said or what that court thought its role was, they weren't going to come because they read the arraignment document and there were no way they were going to let that's that, that was one and done that the arraignment documents all you need to have an arraignment and then do a hearing is some sort of double jeopardy again 
people who think that are evil either completely ignorant, not of not just of U.S. law, but of common law going all the way back to Europe, centuries, and don't have any business as lawyers. So my point of view on the Mueller report is, if this thing proceeds to committees in the House of Representatives who choose not to impeach, that's fine. Sometimes a preliminary hearing in a criminal case does not lead to a trial. But to decide that that's an impossibility, well, that's a completely inept point of view. So, Mueller. The other political issue that I was curious about is what's going on inside the state of Missouri. I'll let an article from the Washington Post give us the background here. It was written by Reese Thebolt on June 8th. Basically, well, just from the beginning. Under any circumstances, a pelvic exam is uncomfortable. The invasive practice requires a doctor to insert a speculum into the patient's vagina and examine her cervix and to insert fingers into that patient's vagina while pressing her abdomen to feel her reproductive organs. Even when it's medically necessary, it's unpleasant. But when it's not, when it's instead performed only because of a state mandate, doctors say the examination can be traumatizing. And that's exactly what's going on in the state of Missouri. Jumping from the Washington Post over to the Kansas City Star, and an opinion piece written by the Star's editorial board, it basically just says, well, again, start from the beginning. This was an uh, article, an opinion piece published on June 5th of this year. St. Louis OBGYN Amy Adante this week tweeted about the real-world effect of the requirements being imposed on patients and doctors at the last clinic performing abortions in Missouri. Today, the doctor wrote, I was forced by the state of Missouri to perform an unnecessary pelvic exam on a patient terminating her pregnancy for fetal anomaly. She is heartbroken over her situation, and I was forced to do an invasive, uncomfortable exam. It broke me as a physician to do this to her. That's the tweet. The Kansas City Editorial Board says this, To her, not for her. Not for any medical reason, but to keep the clinic open at least for now. The harassment of the state is not to be confused with Missouri's new ban on abortions performed after the eighth week of pregnancy, with no exceptions in cases of race or incest. That law is scheduled to take place on August 28th. This is part of a licensing dispute, and it is not a pro-life issue at all, according to Governor Mike Parson. Well, you can say that again. Now, in this case, you essentially have a relatively new head of the health department there, a man named Randall Williams, who has put this policy into effect as one more hurdle, one more thing to make women maybe not want to seek an abortion because of how uncomfortable this unnecessary and invasive procedure is. On the Rachel Maddow show, this was referred to, I believe the term she used was um, state-sanctioned sexual assault. And when you hear the, the nature of the procedure, the insertion and the use of fingers and all this other sort of stuff, it calls, to my mind anyway, the thing that Brock Turner in California received a criminally small prison sentence for doing. In that state, it fell under the uh, definition of rape. But even if you decided that it only fell under the definition of sexual assault, my question would be, who do you hold accountable in a conspiracy to commit sexual assault? That we we understand, I think, as people who are aware of uh, of the definition of rape, that it's not a sexual thing. So you can be a rapist and get no sexual gratification from an act. 
I would also argue that you could be part of a criminal conspiracy to commit rape and not be in the room when it happens. You could even be part of a criminal conspiracy to commit rape and not have any idea who your victims are. Simply by ensuring that there will be numerous victims and that they're victims because of an authoritarian approach, a desire to terrorize, if you will, women away from seeking specific options in their own health care choices, that that notion of overpowering women and terrorizing them certainly falls under the broader definition of rape, or the specific definition in this case, of sexual assault. So if you consider that a forced vaginal probe a second unnecessary exam in almost every case, uh, as a hurdle to get abortion services, if this is ordered by the governor or the state health department, why shouldn't these leaders be charged with conspiracy to commit sexual assault? I mean, what if Brock Turner was extorting someone else to assault the woman behind the dumpster while he just watched? Would Brock Turner still have you know, a legal accountability for the attack on that woman. If, for example, he was paying someone to insert fingers into vagina instead of doing it himself, or had maybe some sort of uh, evidence or some sort of way of, of extorting or blackmailing somebody into you know committing this crime, it absolutely boggles the mind as to why somebody would want to commit a crime like this. That's a fair question, but it does fall under that heading of overpowering, traumatizing, and terrorizing women for some random reason. In this case, even if the random reason from a quote-unquote pro-life perspective is viewed as potentially limiting the number of people seeking abortion services, it is nevertheless a sexual assault. And from where I sit, anybody who orders a sexual assault is guilty of a criminal conspiracy to commit rape or something in that ballpark. And I would certainly support, in the state of Missouri, some sort of criminal consequences for unnecessary medical procedures being ordered by the state to be performed upon women by otherwise unwilling doctors. So there's the heavy part of the show. I will kind of broach one other slightly heavy topic. In the, in the midst of saying, well, I kind of view my life as being um, home and work and that work-life balance, church being the third thing for me, but I also spend a lot of my time uh, focused on podcasts, listening to podcasts, recording podcasts, and there has been another sort of death in the family in recent weeks, uh, not in this case the in-laws or somebody I've personally known face-to-face, but sort of a virtual death, a conceptual death. I've played many promos over the years for a podcast network called Simply Syndicated, and that podcast network is essentially gone. And um, by and large, I've been quiet about it. I've been quiet about it online. Uh, I certainly have been only cryptically mentioning it on the podcast. Uh, If you go back to episodes where I mentioned, uh, I think in the month of February, that the Pride 48 community had another death in its family, the, the death of one of its podcasters from Minnesota. That I also was, you know, very fearful that, you know, another, another podcast that I rely upon or set of podcasts in this case were either going to be, you know, dying or fading or forced to relocate somewhere else because of differences of opinion. And I, I want to make clear that as somebody who is actively participating, though never a 
podcast member of the Simply Syndicated Network, I was not passive. I think it's very important for me to say that. I didn't insert myself into the issue. I wasn't one of the many people drawing lines in the sand and and daring people to cross my ideological path on certain things. I actually sat and still do sit relatively confused as to why you know somebody would kind of allow an entire family of shows, and I mean family, to completely break apart in, in the ultimate destruction of dysfunction over things which did not directly impact them. Or if something traumatic had happened that had made someone uh, turn to the T in the LGBT acronym and and attack, that there wasn't discussion about what that change of heart and mind was, and there was no quarter for it. Anyone raising questions or concerns might well find themselves under attack, might find themselves accused of child abuse or worse. And I was silent, relatively speaking, because I was waiting for a moment of reconciliation. And anyone who knows me as an online player kind of knows this is my thing. I'm less likely to attack people for having a different point of view than me, and more likely to chime in and support those people who share my view. In other words, I don't believe that there's any winning to be done by systematically destroying everyone else's opinion until the only opinion left is mine. I'm willing to believe that we live in a world where there's multiple possible opinions about multiple things. But what I was waiting for was a moment of reconciliation. And there have been spats before between shows, especially in a network uh, like this one, But that moment of reconciliation didn't come. And I guess my last word on this was that by not acting, by not speaking, by not tweeting, by not posting on Facebook, I was actually being very, very active. I was being completely engaged in looking for that chance to say, hey, we've been through things before. We are all one. And I don't think that moment was going to come. Clearly, in retrospect, given the choice between people humbling themselves and allowing those agree-to-disagree moments, they would rather destroy everything that they built. And that's sort of what happened. So it is for these reasons and others that I deeply cherish things like the community that currently surrounds Pride 48. And it's part of the reason that I intend to be as supportive as I can be, even while traveling, of events like the one in June and the one coming up in August. Oh, June is busting out all over. Starting June 21st, Friday evening, and ending Sunday evening, June 23rd. June, June, Go on over to Pride 48. Come and find out the schedule from Pride 48 and all the participating little shoes. This is for you, our most precious resource, our listeners. So, put a cheese sandwich on the grill and join us June 21st, 22nd, and 23rd for the Pride 48 live streaming event.
I want to spend some time in this Odds and Ends show talking about favorites, and I guess I'll get there right away with the different drummer. It's unusual for me to cite athletes in the Inappropriate Conversations uh, podcast. I've got numerous different drummers, and I've named a couple across the years. Uh, Barry Sanders comes to mind from a running back from Oklahoma State University and the Detroit Lions in American football. But I don't believe that I've named an athlete who was current, um, focusing more on the legacy of people like Bo Jackson and Derek Thomas from back in the day. But my different drummer this week is literally as current as you could possibly get. Vonson Company has been the uh, spiritual leader in many ways, certainly the defensive leader of the Manchester City Football Club for you know something like eight years now. And he's been leading the team through uh, a period of time when they've collected four league titles and several other trophy, trophies and multiple competitions. And for me, when I first started watching English soccer, uh, I think probably my interest peaked in around, around 2006, having just watched the World Cup and deciding that I wasn't quite done watching this sport just yet. And coincidentally, at that time, initially Fox Sports was showing a lot of English games on a regular basis. I'd seen some the year before during a trip to Las Vegas, and so I was kind of aware that this was something that American cable television was doing something with. It has since moved to NBC Sports, and either way, there's been a steady diet of the English game available to me all this time. I can't really say why. Uh, When I first started watching Manchester City Football Club, they weren't a very good team. They were a team that maybe was as... They were as like as likely to get relegated, finish in the bottom three, lose their place in the top tier of English football, and no longer be appearing regularly on television, as they were to win the league in those first few years. And maybe it's because of my interest in the position. I mean, when I played American flag football, I was a defender. And so maybe I tend to focus on the defense more anyway. At that time, the United States men's national team, to me, had more interesting characters in the defense than maybe at the striker role. But I kind of latched on to Richard Dunn as a player, not a perfect player by any stretch of the imagination, but playing that central defender role and being somebody that I could, again, kind of latch on to. As I'm learning to understand this game and how the televised form of this game was going to work, it was always advantageous to be able to have a single individual player to focus on. And because of the way Man City was playing, they weren't controlling possession and dominating the ball the way they do right now. They weren't scoring a ton of goals. You could count on the defensive members of the team being on television a lot more often than the midfielders or the forwards. And to me, that mantle just naturally passed from Richard Dunn to Vincent Company. And I quickly, quickly realized that the position itself had been upgraded by moving a person brought in initially as a holding midfielder into what might be his more natural position in the the middle of the defense. And that that upgrade was potentially going to lead to some very, very, um, well, exciting years. It's going to lead to some titles, in other words. So as a player and as a current player, company has always been of interest. Now, the reason for this being so timely is that we're now just a month or so away from Manchester City winning their second back-to-back titles here in the current run of the English Premier League. And in the uh, next to the last game of the regular season, the last home game of the season, the only goal 
and a critical goal in a title race where both Liverpool and Manchester City were winning every single game, and therefore the first team to lose a game was going to lose the title. And Manchester City had a slight advantage in the table. They were going to win by a point if they just kept winning out. Therefore, they couldn't afford to either draw a game or tie a game, and certainly couldn't afford to lose a game. Well, in that last home game, the decisive goal came from a 30-plus-foot wonder strike by company. Now, Madison Company doesn't have that many goals in a long Manchester City career. I mean, as you scroll down and look at, at what he did for the club, I, mean, I think his goal scoring for City was 20 at the most. You know, So he wasn't the kind of player as a central defender that you look to to score goals. And his only goal in the decisive you know, in this decisive run in this 2018-19 season as a whole, his only goal was that wonder strike. So no one could make an argument that company was irrelevant despite being off and on injured and not an everyday starter like he was during his heyday. He nevertheless contributed what might have been the goal that made the difference in giving the team the title. So why the sense of urgency to talk about company as a different drummer right now? Well, the big reason is that company has announced at the end of the season that he's leaving Manchester City, that he's uh, essentially retiring from the English game, and instead will be sliding back to the team where he started his professional career in Brussels. So let me perhaps provide a little bit of background to help understand why this is so interesting. And obviously to me, when your favorite player leaves your favorite team, pretty impactful. Company is a Belgian professional footballer, according to Wikipedia, who plays as center back and captains Premier League club Manchester City and the Belgian national team. He began his professional career at Anderlecht in Belgium, spending three years at the club before moving to the German club Hamburg in 2006. A couple of years later, he made the move to Manchester City, where he has been since 2008. He's established himself as an integral part of that squad until he just recently retired, and is regarded as one of the bargain buys of the revolutionized Manchester City era, blossoming into one of the Premier League's best centre-backs. In the 2011 and 12 season, he was awarded with the captaincy of Manchester City, leading his club to win the Premier League that season, their first title in 44 years. So, the credentials are there, and what you do is you get a sense that, as a 17-year-old, going to a uh, Belgium club soccer team... Moving from there to Germany, moving from there to Manchester City in England, now returning back to that same club in a role of player-manager. Now, you don't see this all that much these days, which is why it's going to make the experiment itself very interesting. It was always clear that company had a, a coach's mind, even as a player, and this transition makes sense if his ultimate role is going to be in some sort of coach or general manager capacity. And as a Manchester City follower, I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if that plays out in a return one day to Manchester City. All of this, interesting though it may be in the realm of football, isn't really enough probably to name company as a different drummer. But anyone who follows company on uh, social media, like Twitter, will have a pretty good feel that this is a well-spoken, engaged, aware, and savvy athlete. And I don't want to call that out as if it's completely unusual or totally novel in any way. But company certainly fits the bill completely when it comes to somebody who's capable one day of playing a role uh, far bigger than merely sport. 
my decision, in fact, came from uh, as a fan, just sort of looking around and trying to see uh, what information could I find that would support this this move that um, company was making away from my team and back to the team where he started. And what I encountered online was an all-star game, a sort of a testimonial match is what it's being called. Um, a company's farewell to Man City will be played on September 11th, this uh, upcoming you know fall, as legends face off in a Premier League all-star game with all the proceeds going to tackle for MCR, tackle for Manchester. And to me, that's what is really interesting here. Company has teamed up with the mayor of Manchester to support a to support a charity or a piece of activism that will raise money, awareness, and create strategies for dealing with the homeless pro- homelessness problem in that city. Tackle for Manchester, uh, and again at Twitter, it's at t a c k l e number four m c r, is a combined effort of company and Andy Burnham to tackle rough sleeping and homelessness in Greater Manchester. Despite not being English and being brought to the uh, English Premier League from his own home uh, home country of Belgium through Germany and there, he's nevertheless made himself every in every conceivable way a part of that community. His wife is from Manchester. Children were born there. Again, you get this sense that there's likely to be, if not a return, certainly a continued presence in his in-law's hometown. And again, I'm feeling that weight of relationship with in-laws even more acutely now than I did when I decided that the combination of companies, um, his legacy as a player and his activism made him the perfect different drummer for an odds and ends kind of show. But honestly, he was probably on the short list anyway one day for no other reason than simply being my favorite. To be an athlete and named as a different drummer, you either have to do something as spectacular as what I think company might be able to achieve one day, or you need to be my favorite. That is certainly true of the Bo Jacksons and Derek Thomases and Barry Sanders of the world. I suspect it's even more true, though, of Vance on Company. I don't know that there's an athlete right now that I'm going to miss as much as this one. So when it comes to the topic of favorites, I kind of wanted to think back a little bit and, and kind of remember what happened last year when I recorded Inappropriate Conversations number 212, Intersections in the Neighborhood. It was recorded live before a studio audience, and that was in New Orleans for the uh, Pride 48 streaming event. This year, the New Orleans Podcast Expo is scheduled for August 16th through August 18th, and that's also same location, the New Orleans Superdome. A couple of episodes later, I released an inappropriate conversations that was one of the Proud to Know You series. I called it Beyond Superdome because of the location, the uh, the Holiday Inn, New Orleans downtown Superdome being the location for the event. So while I'm simultaneously promoting that in just a few days there's going to be a live streaming event with Pride 48, we're also just a couple of months away from the New Orleans Podcast Expo. What that means, though, is that I've let almost a year go by before getting around to telling the rest of the story. 
that goes all the way back to Inappropriate Conversations number 212, recorded last August before a studio audience in New Orleans and released in podcast form last September. Now, is there really a rest of the story to tell here? Am I going to revisit Fred Rogers and a Mr. Rogers neighborhood look back and, and all that? Not exactly. I think in that show, recorded with Nicole Villacrez from Greetings from Nowhere, we did a pretty good job of covering the Fred Rogers things that I, I really wanted to talk about, including raising some hard questions. If you haven't listened to Inappropriate Conversations number 212, I recommend it. It's very interesting, if only from the perspective of being recorded live and having a live co-host for the first time ever, at least for the Inappropriate Conversations format of this podcast, and um, dealing with Fred Rogers in a way that is probably was probably more uh, more aggressive and maybe more real than a lot of other folks. There's a sentimentality that creeps in from the Mr. Rogers neighborhood effect. And uh, although I let that hit a little bit near the end of the show, I didn't start that way. I started with some really hard questions. But that's not the part I left out. The part I left out is a bullet point that I was calling not my favorite Fred. When you go into a live re- a live recording where you've got a time slot, whether that be 55 minutes or an hour or 30 minutes or whatever... It's kind of important to be comfortable, and at least for me, it's important for me to be comfortable knowing that I've got plenty of material. And to have enough material to cover what could be a gap in the course of a one-hour show, you almost need to have too much material. And all along, I was looking at the last one or two bullet points on my agenda, thinking, hey, we may not get here, and if we don't get here, that's okay. But if I'm going to do an odds and ends show and promote Pride 48... And talk about some of my favorites, whether that be my favorite soccer player or what. It occurs to me that I never, in that live recording, got around to talking about my favorite Fred. Now, it was probably obvious last year that Fred Rogers was not going to be my favorite Fred. I raised some very specific concerns I had about some things that I kind of wish that Fred Rogers had done differently. But he never had a chance, because my favorite Fred is somebody that I I knew personally, that I met along the way. And again, when I started thinking about uh, family relationships that fall under the heading of in-laws, it takes me back to my favorite Fred. Now, the Fred I want to refer to, Freddie Lee was her name. Also cared very deeply about children, had a gentle spirit, and often had more going on in her mind and in, in her thoughts that met the eye. See, Freddie Lee was my wife's uh, grandmother on her mom's side. And, you know, I met her when I was still a teenager because I started dating the woman who's my wife when I was still a teenager. And I was a fairly irreverent teenager. No surprise there. I'm still a fairly irreverent, irreverent middle-aged man. And so I was always jokingly calling her Fred. The truth is, maybe outside of TV shows like Petticoat Junction, I don't think I'd ever met a Freddie Lee before that Freddie Lee was, to me, a very interesting name. And I'm not sure that anybody thought that it was good form for me to call her Fred. I'm quite sure, actually, that I'm the only person on the planet that she per- permitted this kind of nonsense from. Calling her Fred was was a risky move on my part, I suppose, and somehow I got away with it. When I mentioned that Fred, Freddie Lee, had a gentle spirit and cared deeply about children, it reminds me of just one very specific story. I'll tell just two little quick stories about Freddie, and then I'll... I'll move into the transition for what I think is going to be coming up next on Inappropriate Conversations, including Third Person, the title of this show. 
Um, at one point along the way, you know, Freddie lived in assisted living, and she was very capable of taking care of herself to a large degree, but there came a point when it was necessary to take her car away from her, because as the person who ran the gas station across the street said that, you know, she, over the years, had grown less and less concerned about crossing traffic. Uh, my wife and I sometimes jokingly referred to her approach to driving as, I'm old and I'm coming out, including cutting straight across four lanes of traffic to leave the assisted living complex and go to the gas station across the street when both the gas station and this assisted living center straddled a very busy four-lane road. So she took very hard the inability to drive, and so we were kind of intentional from time to time about trying to find ways to, to get her out and about because she, she didn't have any trouble um, with mobility per se. So one day we decided that we were going to take her to a movie because my job at the time in the movie theaters gave me free tickets to any movie I wanted to go to for any show in town. But then the question became, well, what movie do you take, you know, your you know, girlfriend's grandmother to? And we decided that the safe bet was one of those Disney kind of reissues. That particular year, they had removed the Jungle Book from the vault. And for me, it was probably seeing the Jungle Book in theaters was seeing it for the first time, at least the first time not on television, since the late 1960s, early 1970s. I mean, it had been that long. I can remember at one point seeing the Jungle Book at the drive-in, and I'm, I may have been only four or five years old, and that's the last time I saw it. So my wife and I took her grandmother to see the Jungle Book, and what really struck me was when the movie was over, um, this G-rated Disney fair was going to get a little bit of a hard review from Freddy, that Fred was not at all convinced that this was an appropriate movie for children. She was worried about it all the way on the drive back to where she lived, because that tiger was really scary, and it wasn't a good idea to take children to a show that had a really scary tiger in it. That's when I mentioned that I see a connection between Fred and a tiger and caring about children and having a gentle spirit. That's kind of where that connection kind of clicked for me. And I said, you know what? If I'm doing a live recording and I've got an hour allotted to me and I run through my topic faster than I think... And I need something to fill time with. Well, I can tell a lot more stories about Fred than just that one. If I needed 15 minutes to fill, I could have filled it with the family member named Fred. Once, uh, I guess the last thing I'll say about Freddie Lee was I was going through some files in my file cabinet. This might have been around the time that I was you know, looking through um, maybe nine years ago and saying, what kind of information have I accumulated over the years that might actually be relevant to a podcast? If I've got a whole bunch of topics in mind, what collateral do I have to go behind those topics and help me speak to those topics? And I was going through file cabinets, looking through old journals. It's where I found this this set of short stories and, and poetry that I've sprinkled throughout the years in inappropriate conversations. And in that same file cabinet, I found a birthday card from my wife's grandmother. And this was, you know, not long into our marriage, maybe a couple of years in, because she didn't survive that long into our marriage. But one of the things that just kind of stopped me in my tracks about it was this particular year on this particular birthday card, Freddie Lee said, signed this card, Love, Fred. She was very much in on the joke. She was doing everything she could to make me part of the family by making what might have been an irreverent joke of my part, part of our relationship. Part of our relationship in such a way that it, it was going to show up 
on birthdays and on Christmases for as long as she was going to still be with us. I'm in the process of mentally saying goodbye to a father-in-law, knowing that previously I'd said goodbye to a mother-in-law and to the various grandparents. And to be honest with you, my, my feelings of nostalgia and affection could not possibly run any deeper than they do for Fred. If I can get close to that during funeral arrangements this year, I will find the appropriate level of catharsis. Greetings from the cockpit. This is Captain Scott, and we'd like to thank you for flying the Seder Sphere. This is co-pilot Cindy. We ask you at this time to unfasten your safety belt and release your chairs from their uptight position. We're high-flying with stopovers expected in theater, gaming, movies, television, and other mature destinations. We'd like to thank you for flying the frisky skies, and we hope to see you on our next flight to the Seder Sphere. So what's next on Inappropriate Conversations? Why did I feel like I needed an odds and ends show to bridge the gap between last year's live New Orleans podcast and whatever's to come this year? Well, I won't be one of the shows on the live streaming weekend in June because of travels. I've not yet made a commitment to whether I'm going to do either Walk the Earth or Inappropriate Conversations live in New Orleans this year. My commitment so far is that I will be there. But what I do when I'm there is is yet an open question. I feel like there's a very strong possibility that there'll be an Inappropriate Conversations recording before we get to the month of August. Because I've kind of mostly made up my mind that I'm going to cover material that I can remember all those years ago. Looking at it in the file cabinet, the same time I found, found that card from, from my favorite family member, Fred, and saying, yeah, this is not an essay I think I could ever share. I just put it back on the shelf and just said, uh, partly because maybe it was a little bit too personal, uh, parts of it seemed risky to me in one way or another. But the other problem was that there would you'd have to cover so much background material. There'd have to be so much supporting explanation to even make the point of view on an essay called Right Reasons be reasonable in any way. However, I've got this theory that over the years, um, somewhat intentionally, but also somewhat not intentionally, I might have actually covered that background material. So my theory is that maybe with a quick introductory essay, I may dive into a document that goes back 25, 35 years and just read it as is, warts and all, with no annotations and no explanations, under the heading of Right Reasons. So if the next Inappropriate Conversations recording is simply called Right Reasons, you'll know it played out kind of the way I planned when I was looking at this just a few months ago. And you'll also know that if the next Inappropriate Conversations recording doesn't have the title Right Reasons, well, you'll know that I chickened out. Either way, in the interest of providing some supporting background material, I'm going to share another short story from the Manifestos of Neo-Surrealism. This one, dating back to June 1988, was called Third Person, a Neo-Surrealist dialing an operated-assisted telephone call. I came home today and thought I might have a message waiting. Jennifer called you, wanted you to call back when you wake up Friday morning. I don't know why I thought that. No message. What am I supposed to say? 1988 was a bad year? They raised the postage stamp to 25 cents. You can't transfer your phone number when you move into a new area code. It takes time to find the Western Union when you move into a different city. So, 
1988 must have been a bad year. Possibly just the first part, say 60%. I turned 25 after that, a lucky age. 25 years old, almost, and I'm still checking the mail every day, wondering when it'll come, rattling the change in my pocket in case it's COD, mentally rearranging my schedule in the event I must pick up a parcel at the post office. Lately, I've been waiting until close to noon before I even check. I hate wondering if I'm too early or just didn't get anything. Going back to the box embarrasses me. You must understand, I've been waiting since December. In fact, December 12th. I remember the day clearly. When I added the six to eight weeks for delivery up in my head, the end of January seemed so far away. Between one point and the other, I had bowl games to watch, a wedding to attend, an appointment with the dentist. We won on a two-point conversion with seconds left. The wedding, a simple ceremony, was beautiful. The reception, festive. No cavities. Also, no reply at all. So I decided to call. Gee, I'd been meaning to call you, but, well, what else would you say? He's certainly not, oh, no, I've been trying to avoid you, and I just knew I shouldn't have answered this telephone call. No, I remember a conversation. Call it a disagreement. She said I wouldn't tell her if I thought her new hairstyle looked, you know, funny. I said I would. She said she didn't think I'd have any good reason to tell her. I said I'd tell her the bad just like I'd tell her the good, mind you, with equal hesitation. My God, if I would tell Patty that the the locker room said she was stunning between the sheets, surely I'd tell Jennifer I'd prefer to coiffure if I did. She just stopped, thought, stirred her tea, drank some, and with an almost ashamed look said she didn't think she would say anything if she were me. Oh no, I've been trying to avoid you. Maybe people don't realize they are missed. You know, if Cindy came to me one day and said, I can't get by without hearing from you more regularly than I do, I, I just don't know. I might buy some time, take off my glasses and clean them with my shirt, hold them up to whatever light forms the shadows, and wonder whether I'd share with her the same honesty I'd claimed with Jennifer. I'd feel flattered. I'd feel obligated. I'd feel pensive which is what I always feel anyway. However, Cindy may not forge the same futile trips to the mailbox. Her phone calls may not begin with, gee, I've been meaning to call. She may not have to stir her tea or clean her glasses. So far, personal ethics have prevented me from raising this possibility, but a conversation with Cindy could hold a little bit more interest than how about those Dodgers or have you found a new job? Try this. Have you heard from Jennifer lately? You know, I say, I have a real problem. I'm checking the mailbox every day, thinking about buying an answering machine. What does it mean? You don't have to worry about a thing, she says. What thing? I don't even know what's so horrible that I don't need to worry about it. I'm not even sure of that much. I need an outside view, a message from the top, someone to say that it's obvious. Can't you see? Come on, when was the last time you looked in the mirror? May 17th. And then it really was more of a glimpse. In fact, I saw more than one face. Now, I'm not talking about insanity. They say you're going insane when you talk to yourself and start to answer back. 
But what does it mean when you keep asking yourself question after urgent question without getting any answer, without getting even no for an answer? Were there any messages for me? Gee, I've been meaning to call you, but... Oh no, I've been trying to avoid you. Say, you look upset. I've never seen you look so bad. Tell me, when was the last time you looked in the mirror? Yeah, how about those Dodgers? Let me get this straight. You can't get by without hearing from me more often than you do? It's my hairstyle, isn't it? Operator, are you you sure you don't have a listing? Okay, okay, I'll, I'll try Jersey. You know, back in December, summer seemed so far away. Thanks for listening. Find all the best shows under the rainbow at pride48.com.